Can your American soldiers, new as they will be, stand up against the Germans? Bring them quickly, for we are almost exhausted. A French poilu to Colonel John Henry Parker, 102nd Infantry, American Expeditionary Force, upon Parker's arrival in France, 1917. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode SA4, Sechepray, Doughboys in the Vouvre. The best way to start this episode is with humble gratitude for getting the BFWWP to the 100 review mark on iTunes. Folks, thank you so very much. Uh, the reviews keep coming in too, last I checked. Uh, we were at 115. I mean, that's just crazy and awesome. That is really something else for me, and I am so very happy about it. Thank you so much. Thanks again. So, in order to not interrupt the flow of the Verdant episodes being re-released on the BFWWP, I'm releasing this episode and the next as one of the standalone ones. Another reason for the standalones is that these episodes can't wait until the Verdun episodes are complete. Uh, this is because the centenary of the Seychelles battle is mere weeks away, and I would like these episodes out by then. And yes, I know I'm supposed to be working on the Meuse-Argonne offensive, and I will. I may have to do another little one-off episode for here, though. And in fact, I most likely will. But I will get to the Mers Argon. It's, it is on the list. It's next, folks. Okay, here we go. On April 6th, 1917, the United States of America had formally declared war on the Imperial German Reich and its fellow travelers. It was a momentous decision for the young nation. For the first time, the United States would be participating in European conflicts directly and on European soil. For France and the United Kingdom, this was a godsend. As 1918 opened, they needed a miracle. Russia, caught in paralyzing and deadly seizures of revolution, had bowed out of the Great War at the end of 1917. The German army would now have the freedom to transfer some 40 infantry divisions from the Eastern Front over to France and Flanders, and they had begun to do that very thing. After three years of unprecedented slaughter on the Western Front, France's army was exhausted. In spring of 1917, after a disastrous offensive on the Chemin des Dames, the French army had found itself paralyzed by mutinies. It took the rest of the year to recover. The United Kingdom's army was wearing itself thin and was approaching exhaustion as well. With the French mutinies, the BEF had shouldered the main effort on the Western Front, but the effects of multiple large-scale battles 
and hundreds of thousands of casualties were showing on the haggard and drawn British and Dominion battalions. The United States' decision to enter the war on the Allied side heralded the much-needed coming of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of fresh-faced men coming to defeat the Germans. America, however, was a nation not yet ready for war, particularly a war on this scale. In April 1917, the U.S. Army stood at around 200,000 men, and while the call had gone for volunteers and draftees, it would be a while before those hundreds of thousands would be ready for battle in the trenches of Flanders and France. Nevertheless, under the leadership of General John J. Blackjack Pershing, the first contingents of American boys landed in France in June of 1917. These were the first doughboys to arrive, and they were the men of the 1st Infantry Division, known as the Big Red One, because their shoulder patch literally features a big red numeral one on it. Doughboys. In World War II, American troops were called GIs, a term that remains in use today. In Vietnam, the American infantryman was called a grunt, and in my time, we simply called them by the number and letter designation of their job, 11 Bravos. In World War I, however, the American soldier was called a doughboy. This was the term he preferred when he didn't call himself a guy. The Brits liked to call their American cousins Yanks and Sammies, which weren't the Americans' favorite nicknames. Quick aside, where did the term doughboy come from? We're going to be covering the Americans for some time, so let's go ahead and let's get this out of the way. There are several misty and murky origins for the nickname. A popular legend is that the term came from the word adobe, from the Mexican campaign in the American Southwest and its long, dusty marches. Another theory is that Doughboy goes back to the U.S. Civil War, where Union infantrymen wore uniforms with big buttons that looked like pieces of dough. Those are just two of several theories. And we'll just go back to the story. The second American division to arrive in France was the 26th Infantry Division. The 26th was a National Guard unit based out of New England and thus nicknamed the Yankee Division. As the summer turned into fall, the second Infantry Division was created on French soil and the 42nd Rainbow Division, another National Guard unit that drew men from all over the country, arrived. These four divisions would form the core of American units in France due to their soon-to-be-earned experience. These episodes will focus on the first two units, the Big Red One and the Yankee Division. As 1918 opened, General Pershing wanted a sector of his own on the Western Front. He wanted it because the French and British very much wanted to incorporate American battalions into their own depleted units and use them as they saw fit. The Americans were frightfully 
unprepared for the war and needed all of the guidance they could get. What better way to get good leadership than have the units amalgamated with allied units already experienced in modern warfare? Pershing politely but firmly resisted almost all attempts at this, as he would have as little of it as possible. Though he readily gave segregated African-American regiments to the French, who happily took them. Getting his own sector would help keep his troops together while giving them live-fire experience of the trenches. What about these Americans, though? The British and French considered themselves saved with the oncoming of the Yanks and Sammies, but they looked on their new ally as woefully ill-equipped and ill-prepared for battlefields like that of Verdun, the Somme, and Passchendaele. French liaison officers attached to American units figuratively tore their hair out when the raw and green U.S. troops cavalierly ignored French experience and advice, and they rolled their eyes in utter frustration when American officers called on the American campaigns in the Philippines and Mexico as war experiences. Nasty and brutally real, the Philippines and Mexican campaigns had been for sure but they were nothing like the carnage being meted out on the Western Front. To be sure, this disdain for the French was not universal. Brigadier General Peter Traub, the commander of the 51st Brigade, 26th Infantry Division, dismissed the haters with the question, what in the name of heaven could we have done without them? Outside of food and clothing, they either have furnished us or are furnishing us with everything we have needed. Brigadier General Traub's words come to us through the absolutely magnificent work of Colonel Terence Finnegan, who wrote the book, A Delicate Affair on the Western Front, America Learns to Fight a Modern War in the Vouvre. That book has formed the backbone of this very episode. The Americans brought numbers with them. Just one American infantry division clocked in at over 27,000 men, more than twice as large as a French or British infantry division. French leadership was almost bowled over when they learned the Americans were planning on raising 44 divisions. This meant bringing nearly 1.2 million soldiers into the war. And this could mean nothing else but defeat for the Bosch legions on the other side of the wire. Pershing wanted his divisions large. With 27,000 men per division, that meant that 13,000 of them would be riflemen. The guiding principle here was that Pershing wanted superior firepower so he could keep pushing on the enemy by weight of numbers. What about the soldiers themselves? At this stage in the war, French, British, and even German troops were all experiencing declining morale from a war that would never end. The summer of 1914 and its excitement had happened a lifetime ago, and no one now could ever imagine how anyone could have thought that way. The Americans had none of these feelings. 
In fact, they were quite the opposite. They were excited to get in the game, and they saw the war as a great game, the ultimate game. They wanted to get in on it before it was over. American men flocked to the colors once the declaration of war was made public. The Great War had now been on the front page of every newspaper across the globe for the past three and a half years. The reports did not shy away from the horrors being experienced on the Western Front and other theaters of the war, and yet the Americans remained eager as anything to get into the fray. U.S. Army Sergeant William Langer, an American whose parents were off the boat from Germany itself, later wrote of this very juxtaposition. Sergeant Langer stated in his memoirs, what strikes me most, I think, is the eagerness of the men to get to France and above all, to reach the front. One would think that after almost four years of war, after the most detailed and realistic accounts of the murderous fighting on the Somme and around Verdun, to say nothing of the day-to-day -day agony of trench warfare, it would have been all but impossible to get anyone to serve without duress. But it was not so. The American doughboy went to war wearing the Model 1912 cocky drab uniform, consisting of a four-pocket blouse and breeches that were both made of wool similar to that found in wool blankets. The doughboys arrived with thick canvas gaiters for their legs that were later replaced with the puttees, long strips of cloth wrapped around the lower legs, used by everyone else. The helmet used was the British tin hat, called the Brody here in the U.S. For weaponry, the American soldier used the M1903 Springfield rifle, a 30-06 loaded weapon that weighed some nine pounds and used a five-round stripper clip. The Springfield is known as the U.S. rifle of World War I, but as division after division arrived, later units were issued the M1917 Enfield, copied after the British 1914 Enfield model. The United States was woefully ill-equipped with machine guns, and when it came to the Western Front, France and Britain had to help the newbies out. France supported American machine gun units with the heavy-as-a-bastard Hotchkiss. I mean, I held one of these things, and man. And the British supplied the Vickers. For light machine guns, the Americans used the French Chauchat, nicknamed the Chauchot or the Chouchou, a gun that gets a bad rap for being a dirt magnet, but was fairly reliable and put out a thick stream of bullets in a hurry. The Browning automatic rifle, a weapon that would be a fixture during World War II, only came out in the last weeks of the war. Artillery was a mix and match of American and French guns. So, with all of this gear and motivation to get into the fight, where were the Allies going to put the Americans? Where would they go, especially since the Americans were being so pushy and wanting to stay together? The French decided to give the Americans a sector of the line in the Chemin des Dames sector in the fall of 1917, where French General Nivelle had launched his disastrous offensive earlier in the spring. To the south 
of the bulge of the Saint-Miel salient, the Americans would establish a training area near Gondricourt. The American sector would come with conditions at first, however. The French had made the not incorrect decision that the Americans were as yet unprepared for the war, and they would need mentoring and tutoring until they could stand in their own boots. The Americans would get their sector, but it would be under French tactical control until such time as the Americans were deemed ready. This is a fact that has gone obscure in the century since the end of the Great War, but the United States Army owed a lot to the veteran French Armée de Terre during World War I. American units entered the frontline trenches and under French guidance began learning the business of what war was really like. By January of 1918, the Americans had been granted a second sector of the line, this time in the Saint-Miel salient itself. It's here where we will spend the rest of this episode and the next. In January of the last year of the Great War, the AEF 1st Division manned the front-line trenches to the east-southeast of the town of Saint-Miel, where the Germans had created a bulging salient into the stabilized front line. The French called the Saint-Miel salient the hernia. Since the vicious battles of 1914 and early 1915, where the Germans had first seized and established the salient, and then the French had hammered away at it ruthlessly, but unsuccessfully, this section of the Western Front had been treated as a quiet sector by both sides. Chewed up and mauled divisions came here to rest and refit. The American 1st Division took over the portion of the line running from apremont les forêts to Richecourt and Sechepré and ending at Fleuret. This part of the Western Front lay in the Vouvre, a sparsely populated region running from the river Chier, area in eastern Belgium, Luxembourg, and France, down roughly parallel to the Meuse and the Meuse Heights to the east of Verdun, down to Toul, and ending south of Toul around Neufchâteau. The Vouvre is bordered on the east by the Moselle River, and in pre-war years, the French Army Command considered the area expendable in the event of a German invasion. The roads in the area were poor and or non-existent, and the land was forested and swampy. The Germans saw the Vouvre differently in the 1914 invasion. Any ground taken here would threaten the hinge of the French line at Verdun. The Germans had pushed down into the plain and seized Saint-Miel, thereby cutting the Toul-Verdun rail link and affecting the defense of the vital Verdun salient to the northwest. Since the last and unsuccessful French attacks in the area in 1915, the lines had stayed close to where they had been dug in 1914. And again, this was a quiet sector of the front. Both sides let it remain that way for the most part. So in January of 1918, the Americans found themselves in the line with veteran French divisions to their left and right. All units were under the tactical command of French General Fenelon Passaga 
and his 32nd Corps d'Armée, while the U.S. Army headquarters at Chaumont, a village well to the south of the Wevre front, carried out day-to-day staff and supply demands, any raids or potential attacks had to be cleared through the French army. The trench lines in the Vouvre were as miserable as anywhere else on the Western Front. Private Raymond Wunderlich of the 101st Engineers recalled the lines in front of Seychelles village. His lines come to us as well from Colonel Finnegan's A Delicate Affair. The ground out in front of that little valley which formed no man's land was wet and sloppy, almost marshy. The trenches and dugout walls oozed water all the time. In fact, by the side of our front trench near our dugout, we had a little spring. We didn't even have to carry water to the place. But the whole region was badly shell-torn. This was a country over which the French and the Germans had been fighting for four years. Up the line, 25 miles to the northwest, was Verdun. Other doughboys used the phrase mud and muck to describe the frontline conditions. Dugouts were miserable holes, measuring three by three by two meters, where the floors squished up water with every step, and where rats were seen as the rodent versions of canaries and coal mines. When poison gas seeped into the dugouts, the rats would screech and panic, thus signaling the Americans should put on their protective masks. On top of these miserable conditions was another, more dangerous situation. The Germans controlled all of the high ground. Most importantly, a nearly solitary butte known as Montsec. Montsec lay behind German lines, and on military maps it was known as Hill 380, 380 meters in height. The Germans had made sure to seize this piece of real estate right away in the autumn of 1914 much as they had everywhere else on the congealing front line. Montsec cannot be missed when you visit the area. In February of 2016, my man Lee and I drove out there to visit the tiny hamlet of Richcourt, looking for the village where a local Massachusetts boy had been killed in a volunteer raid in May of 1918. Montsec sits near there, dominating the land all around it. And by the way, that's Lee of the Viking Age podcast, so definitely check that out. Today, Monsec is crowned by a stunning American memorial. When it was in German hands, it was said that U.S. troops couldn't change their shirts without the enemy's permission. Any movement seen by the German observers brought on a hailstorm of fire and shrapnel. Nevertheless, the Doughboys took up their part of the line with enthusiasm, and they followed local French trench doctrine despite their own misgivings. According to the commanding general of the local French 8th Army, the policy was that the first line trench, the one that faced the enemy directly, was manned strongly as a sacrifice position. Those men that survived the initial attack bombardment in that trench were to hold out as long as possible with the expectation that they would not be relieved. It was what U.S. Army soldiers would later call a DIP mission. D-I-P. Die in place. 
For the American Expeditionary Force, it was the first division that manned the frontline trenches in the Richecourt Seychelles sector in January of 1918. At about the same time, on the other side of no man's land, the German 78th Reserve Division took over a section of the front line as well. The part of the Voivre where the hamlet of Seychelles is located is flat farmland blotted with large forests. To the northwest of the village is the Bois de Remier, a northern chunk of which is called the Bois Carré. To the northeast of Seychelles is the hamlet of Richecourt, and northeast of Richecourt is Montsec. The front line ran just south of Richecourt, between it and Seychelles, and the line then curved around the Bois de Remier. Directly east of Seychelles is the Bois de Jory, another large patch of forest, and beyond that, the village of Fleuret. To the west is Apremont, and to the west-northwest is Saint-Miel, from which the German salient derived its name. South of Seychelles is the village of Beaumont, which sits on a ridge from which the U.S. regimental headquarters worked. The Germans had initially seized Seychelles in the autumn of 1914, but with French counterattacks in the vicinity, they had pulled back to consolidate their defense line. Raids and artillery duels still occurred, but the last great attacks had been conducted here in 1915. The Americans were given a quiet sector so the French could properly, quote-unquote, blood them before they were cut loose. Both the Americans and the Germans wanted to know about each other. American officers pushed to get trench raids going so they could capture Germans and interrogate them. The Germans thought the very same thing. While the Germans didn't find themselves much impressed by Americans just yet, they wanted to find out for sure what they were made of. A raid would have to be carried out. Across no man's land was the 78th Reserve Division, a unit considered third-rate by Allied intelligence. But in late January 1918, a Major Friedrich Bruns was assigned to the division, and he brought with him a wealth of battlefield experience as well as the drive to put pressure on the enemy. Bruns had been in the war since the very beginning, and he had spent the last years fighting mostly in the Champagne and Meuse regions. His battalion had withstood all French attacks at Verdun in 1916, and he served two tours in the mill on the Meuse. Brun's latest exploits had been at Cambrai, where he and his battalion were part of the counterattack that pushed back the British after their successful tank attack. Bruins got to work planning a lightning-quick attack that would bring back some intel on the new enemy. It would be thoroughly planned, and it would be devastating. Bruins named the operation Einladung, or Invitation. He planned to introduce very brutally to the Americans this modern war they had just all flocked over for. And we're going to leave it there. Leave it to me to turn a short one-off episode into two episodes. Next time, 
and next time means as quickly as possible. We'll be back for the first encounters between the Germans and the Americans. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or talk to me on the Twitter at at www1podcast. You can also go through the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.